Welcome back to The Melancholy Condition. I am your host, Darius Velasquez, and you're listening to Season 3. Enjoy. Here's an ad. Have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? When I was trying to get this podcast off the ground, I had a lot of questions. How do I record an episode? How do I get my show into all the apps that people like to listen? How do I make money from podcasts? The answer to every single one of these questions is pretty simple. Anchor. Anchor is a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing your podcast. And best of all, it's 100% free and ridiculously easy to use. And now, Anchor can match you with great sponsors who want to advertise on your podcast. And that means you can get paid to podcast right away. In fact, that's what I'm doing right now by reading this ad. The reason why I love Anchor is just because it's easy. It's simple. It's on my phone. I don't use any exterior hardware. I don't got to do anything really, but just pick up my phone, open the Anchor app, press record, invite my guests, and boom, you have the melancholy condition. So if you want to start your podcast, do so today. Go to anchor.fm. Five, four, three, two, and one. We are live. Welcome back to the Melancholy Condition. You're listening to season three. I am here today with Dr. Jesse Bollinger. Did I pronounce that correctly? Nice job. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Do you prefer me to talk to you at by or um, say your name as Dr. Jesse or do, can I just call you Jesse? Uh, well, Darius says it's fine. You call me Jesse. You know, people call me Jesse. People call me Dr. Bollinger. People call me Dr. J. Um, I respond to all of it. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. <laughs> you know, Have you ever been, uh, uh, did you ever go as um, the Joker for Halloween, Dr. J? Yes, sir. No, sir. No, sir. <laughs> hey, that, hey, that's a good idea. Right? Awesome. So go ahead and introduce yourself, Jesse. Yeah, sure. So, um, Dr. Jesse Bollinger, as you said, and, and so I, I've had an interesting history. I, I grew up in rural Iowa, which is about 80 miles southwest of Des Moines. And I grew up at, uh, in the early to mid 80s uh, being legally blind as a result of hydrocephalus, which in the 80s, they called it water on the brain, mm -hmm. uh, which it's an increase of cerebral spinal fluid, right? So that caused significant damage to my optic nerve. And as a, as a result, it kind of what got said in the early 80s was, hey, the chances of education and, and essentially a normal life are, are slim to none. And, and I know that there were at least one occasion where my parents were encouraged to put me in an institution. And as a result, I think of that, my parents said, no, we're going to push and, and he's going to have a normal life. And, and so I turned that around on everybody and I said, okay, yeah, you said normal life and, and go to school. So, you know, I'm going to go to school. Mm -hmm. And so I worked really hard academically and socially being in 4-H, being heavily involved in volunteerism, uh, you know, going off and getting a bachelor's in communications and then realizing that, A, I really like school and B, um, I really can help the world. I can really use my experiences to help others. Uh, so get up, got a master's in nonprofit management and eventually a PhD, uh, which that I was told by my master's advisor, hey, you're going to get your PhD. And I said, well, no, sir, I am not. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, you will. And you'll understand later why you are. And, and so I did it. And then I got thrown into this world of volunteer management, uh, what originally was supposed to be the study of youth, uh, but for various legal reasons, um, from the academic side of things, I ended up studying folks that were retired. And 
I started off talking about education and work and had all this mental health stuff popping up. And that's when I was encouraged to redefine the term mental health, which once again, I didn't feel I was qualified to do because I was not a psychologist, mm-hmm. but I was very firmly to- told, uh, and I'll just call Rosemary Pelletier out on this one, Dr. Pelletier, out on saying to me very firmly, you are a PhD student, you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you need to do this. So I did it. And, and, and what it's really come down to is the PhD was a challenge for myself to see if I could even do it. Mm-hmm. There was no professional gain, there was nothing. And, and so I've led a very interesting life, you know, being uh, disabled in a small town, having to work through education, you know, various forms of adversity. Uh, but, but ultimately, everything I've done in life has been to grow individually, but help others personally and professionally. Absolutely. That's good. So yeah. let me backtrack for a minute. You said that you were legally blind. What percentage of your eyesight do you have? If you don't mind me asking. You know, I don't think we've ever, uh, interestingly enough, I just saw my little vision specialist here last week uh, due to cataract surgery. I don't think we've ever expressed the vision loss necessarily in a percentage. Uh, I can do the math real quick, but I won't. Uh-huh. Uh, so normal vision is 20-20, right? Mm-hmm. And, and my vision, my vision ranges from about 2,300 to about 2,600. Uh, so, so well within the confines of legal blindness. Mm-hmm. Now, now, now the caveat to that is, you know, people say, well, what can you see? And, and what, what sighted people don't realize is there's many factors that affect sight. So you have light, you have detail, you have other environmental factors mm-hmm. that can significantly, regardless of your acuities, can significantly uh, define what you can or, in my case, cannot see. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Cool. No, I, I didn't want to make you uncomfortable by asking that question. I'm sure you probably get it a lot, but I'm just, just for my personal um, interest. I'd like to know just because it kind of leaves a very uh, good spectrum of, especially for the listeners, you know, um, being able to understand where you're standing at to yeah. level on with the you achievements know, that you've gained in life. Yeah, you know, I want to jump in and talk about what we're here to talk about, but I have to share a story from this morning. Absolutely. And so I, I was in a, uh, I was waiting for an appointment this morning at, at our local hospital mm-hmm. and I'm in the waiting room and I sat down and I'm checking my email. Uh, in fact, I think I was looking for an email from you and this, this very nice Southern woman leans over to me and she says, what is wrong with your eyes? <laughs> and I said, uh, and that, and that would offend some people. The Most, way she said it. Yeah. And yeah. And, and, and so I kind of chuckled. I said, well, I have hydrocephalus. And she said, you mean you have a brain shunt? And I said, yes, ma'am, I'm, I have, I'm bilaterally shunted. And she said, well, I have a brain shunt too. And I said, you have, so we had this wonderful conversation. And she said, I have never, she was about 70 years old. She'd only had hydrocephalus for five or six years because mm-hmm. she had adult onset. She said, I have never talked to another person that had my condition. Interesting. Yeah. And so I do not mind by any means. That is one of the things that makes me happy as we'll talk about here soon we'll mm-hmm. talk about happiness. So that's one of the things that makes me happy, right? Is being able to use 
honestly, what could have been a major detriment mm -hmm. in my life, right? In, in a way that is positive. Absolutely. I mean, and I think that takes, it takes a lot of willpower to be able to use what some may call as a disability um, as the forefront of what you're standing on. You know what I mean? And there's a lot of other examples of people. Um, I'll use one that kind of just immediately came off the top of my head and it's a pretty severe case. It's that uh, he's a motivational speaker. I think he has like several books out and he doesn't have legs or arms. Yes, that is right. Um, you're, so, so I think the gentleman you're talking about might actually be from Iowa. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I can't... I, I can't think of his name off the top of my head. I don't know him personally, but I, I'm definitely familiar with who he is uh, and definitely know folks that are connected to him. He does do motivational speaking, uh, but more than motivational speaking, he simply lives life as he wants to live it. And if we're talking about the same gentleman, uh, one of the things that people may not know about him, at least the guy from Iowa that I'm thinking of, uh, he's a single father. Really? Yes. Interesting. Here, give me one yes. second. Let me let me look him up because I'm I'm pretty sure we're talking about the same person. But I'd like to. Definitely I think we are. I, I think we are. And uh, I mean, how many? What, that's was, a pretty fine spectrum, right? There can only be so yeah. many. Nicholas James. I'm going to murder this. Uh, Vojcic. Nope, we're talking about different. Oh, interesting. Interesting. Yeah. So we're talking about Yeah, we're talking about different people. Um, but this guy from Iowa is, is much the same as you said. He does do the motivational speaking. Cause, you know, because here's the thing. I don't think I don't think you can be in the position that gentlemen, even like Nicholas, like you just described, or the gentleman that I'm trying to think of, or or even myself, I don't think you can be in these positions and not at some point in life, either by desire or by force do some sort of motivational speaking. Am I jumping all over the country doing motivational speaking? No, I am not. But then again, in some cases I am because it happens informally. It might be a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Mm -hmm. Motivational speaking is not standing on a stage giving a lecture to 200 people. It, motivational speaking is just that. It is speaking motivationally to whoever needs to listen mm -hmm. or wants to listen, right? So there's a lot of ways to look at that. Yeah, this gentleman is from Australia. Um, the only yes, reason that he yes. was the first guy that came into mind, because I remember long, long time ago, whenever it first came out, actually, um, I saw the book uh, Life With No Limits, and that came out in 2010. I haven't actually read any of it. I think I've watched the period of his speeches but um, no, anyways, I think, the, a, I think he did a TED talk, actually. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think was, he was a TED. Yeah, so interesting. It's it's very interesting, you know, being able to have something that someone would call life debilitating and being able to use it as um, a foundation and understand that it's just something that is a, a part of you. It's not necessarily a limit. It's It's not limiting you. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, because I even think about, and, and my kids, my kids ask me, you know, on occasion, or, or they get frustrated, well, dad, you can't drive, or, or you can't do these things. Mm -hmm. and, and, and those aren't necessarily limits. Are they frustrations sometimes? Absolutely. But are they limits? No, they really aren't. Because 
if anything, I'll use the driving, for example, there's times that I, I think driving could be limiting because I think of all the things that I would miss if I was driving through our community. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm not going to walk to Des Moines, obviously, but you know, if I, if I take the 15 minute walk to my office in downtown Creston, you know, I'll stop and talk to people on the street or I'll notice things that could be improved or things that have done been done really well. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it just gives you, it gives you time to think. It gives you time to reflect. It gives you time to prepare in some ways. Yeah. And, and, do, and doing consulting work, I deal with situations on occasion that it, honestly, the solution is to be able to think mm-hmm. through them. Absolutely. Yeah. I like that approach. So let's go ahead and dive into um, yeah, the information do. that you want to share, man. Yeah. Where do you want me to start? Wherever you feel comfortable, man, whatever you think is the most beneficial that you can get your message across. Yeah. You know, you know, so the, as I started to tell you before we, we recorded to me, you know, growing up in a family that, that we did have, we did have some mental illness mm-hmm. and, and, and we've had some, some chemical issues and some different things. Uh, you know, I, I've kind of grown up with this awareness of mental health and what our society calls mental health and being in rural America, being exposed to the, the, deficits in our mental health system, the lack of resources um, in multiple, multiple facets in that happen in rural America, because we because we do miss a lot of things in, mm-hmm. in rural settings, right. Uh, but to, to come to the realization that as a society, there's other ways to look at mental health was kind of refreshing and, and to talk about happiness and that there are things that people can do every single day to help you maintain who you are. And and I think this is one of the things I said before, which is, you know, maintenance, people can say, Hey, something's wrong in my life and I'm going to change it. And, And they might change it, but do they do things to maintain it? Mm -hmm. Um, And one of so, so when I look at mental health, one of the most impactful things from, for me or from a personal standpoint is having strong habits and attitudes and knowing what things make you happy. Now, I, I'm not saying that conditions don't exist that cause a chemical imbalance. However, uh, through my research, uh, I, I've also come to understand that there, there's a great deal that we, and we all know this, that, that science and medicine does not know about the human body. However, there have also been some very significant situations where the brain has done things that it should not have done. Mm-hmm. Medical science says should not be possible. And so my point with that is that I think through happiness and through uh quality of life elements, consistency, these different things that we don't pay attention to as a whole, how we do it in parts. I, I feel that eventually we can find ways 
to help people with mental, traditional mental illnesses improve their lives without medication and deal with some of these stigmas because when it comes down to it, and, and as I found through my research and, and some of the interviews I've done, we all at one point or another more than likely have our own our own issues and, and it's more how you decide to deal with it mm-hmm. that is that is key and I, and I think that's part of it is people deal, learning how to to deal with it and understanding that for example I'm a I'm a guitar player and I and I've known for years that that that's one of the things that can calm me down it can make me happy and it's one of those things that that sadly I don't get to necessarily do every day anymore uh, just because I've grown up but uh, you know I have a family and different things so it's so it is a little harder but but I know as a kid if I didn't get an hour worth of guitar playing before mm-hmm. school and remember I jumped on the school bus at 7 30 in the morning so you do the math and I went time I was getting up yeah uh, you know my day was different because something felt wrong and I think if more people would realize that you can have something in your life that you go to every day that helps keep you centered. It's important. And so for me, one of the things that I do now every day is I make sure I read something new. I make sure I have meaningful conversation. Um, You know, maybe I explore music in some other way instead of picking up a guitar. Maybe I watch a video uh, to learn something new, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one thing I want to touch on was the the maintenance aspect of sure. what of everything that you're kind of um, bringing up to the table today. Something that right. I think to kind of help people understand what that means is you know there's a lot of maintenance that goes on with everything that you do. A lot of things like you can learn something new and then you have to maintain it in order for things to get better. Um, and similar, I guess, analogy to top that is like with bodybuilding so i do a lot of different style of um bodybuilding like physique workouts and like i'll do like right now i'm on an 11 month bulking program but first before i went on here i was on a cutting program so the cutting program everything's all based around intermittent fasting and um hypertrophy training which basically is just what happens is, is you're just training the right muscles to grow in specific areas. So you get that kind of like movie star physique that everybody wants. And right. the thing that, you know, that's where it's based off of is first you start with your cutting, right? To lose any excess fat that may be sitting around. So intermittent fasting definitely helps with that. And then you have a calorie setup. Now, before I go into, um, because I'm in a calorie deficit for cutting, before I go into a surplus of calories, I have to put myself through a maintenance period. And that maintenance period is just eating at a steady level where I'm basically breaking even. I'm not undercutting my calories and I'm not overgoing my calories. So after I'm just cutting, you know what I mean? I'm not immediately jumping into feeding myself 3,000 to 4,000 calories a day. You know what I mean? I have to break it from 1,500 to, and then even out at like 2,000 where my body sits at maintenance to maintain my body weight. So you can get your metabolism to adjust accordingly 
So I'm not burning everything so quickly anymore. My, I'm not storing fats, you know what I mean? And that's what a lot of what this maintenance calls for. So I assume in these practices that you're probably going to be bringing up here soon, that's a little bit of what goes on, right? You're introducing that new program, giving a maintenance period to where, okay, now it's time to get used to what we're doing before we start all these new, maybe even scary um, challenges for yourself. So I'll pick, I'll, I'll pick out one in particular, and uh, I'm going to admit right off the bat, I, I had a regression in this habit, uh, and I've had to build back up to it. So I have known for a really long time that getting up really early in the morning uh, was pretty easy for me. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until maybe a couple of years ago, maybe in the last 10 years, that I've realized how beneficial it was. And so when I had the opportunity to write for the Habits and Attitudes book uh, that was on my list was the daily habit of getting up and getting going. Mm -hmm. And you cannot, you cannot, uh, at least I couldn't jump straight into that. I had to work up to it, right? So so if I'm used to getting up at seven, I might go to 6.30 and I might maintain that for a while. Then I'd go to six and then... uh, you had to go to 5.30 and so on. Um, early, well, late last year, actually, right about, right about this time of year, uh, last year, I was diagnosed with stage three cancer and went into treatment just after the first of the year. And I told myself and I told my spouse, I said, I'm going to maintain my habits uh, and, and my daily routines through throughout treatment Mm -hmm. and and she kind of gave me the uh sure uh and i and i was serious but but i realized real quickly that that wasn't that i the medication the the treatment was not going to allow me to do yeah yeah uh i I mean it it was you know we were doing five day treat five days of treatment straight treatment before we get any further can i ask you how you're recovering well I'll tell you in just a second. Okay. That's part of that's going to answer the yeah. Okay. Awesome. So, so we would do five days of treatment one week, one day the next week, one day the next week, and then back on five. And uh, we did this uh, from January until about the middle part of April. Mm-hmm. And the last round of chemo, they hospitalized me because of one of the drugs. Mm-hmm. And the doctor said, I'm not going to let you leave without a PET scan. So we know what our next step is. Yeah. And I will never forget him walking in and uh, he said, I, I said, well, how'd it go? You know, what, what are we doing? And he said, uh, he said, you are, you are cleared, you are cured. And interesting. You know, go on and go home. Mm-hmm. And uh, to, to hear the word cure from an oncologist was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, because I know a lot of people that haven't been able to hear that. Yeah. And, and, and so I'm doing great. And so what has happened is being able to get back to who I was has been an interesting process because I've had to kind of get back into these daily routines. I've had to pick up old projects, even finishing the book. You know, I tried to finish it before treatment. It mm-hmm. didn't happen. So we had to do that. So a lot of things have had to happen. And if it weren't for some of these routines, uh, you know, like the learning and, and then getting up as early as I can, 
uh, I don't think I would have been as successful. And, and I still struggle with the getting up early, even to this day. But, Absolutely. But everything else has kind of, fall, kind of fallen back in where it should be. Because um, there are a lot of facets to recovering from something like that. Mm-hmm. So something that like I kind of started, I think, season one. So I've said this, everything that I've been recording these past like 20 recordings that I've done since I released the openings of the schedule. Um, I've, for some reason, everything that I started within season one, somewhere in these recent episodes correlates to something somebody's talking about. So one thing I wanted to bring up was, I don't remember what episode it was, but it was season one. There's only like seven episodes. So I talk about an itinerary. I talk about, you know, it started all with self-motivation because before I started this podcast, I was in a very weird spot to where I was doing a lot of things out of like pride because I wanted to be viewed as a certain person, uh, viewed a certain way by my peers and my family. And um, I would take on all these crazy projects, things that I really didn't even care about, but I looked at it as like, it was a quick come up. Right. So with my clothing line, I started the clothing line. Cause I was like, that's easy. I'm in college. I can do a clothing line. All I, I'm, artistically gifted so i can just sit down and paint or draw for a couple hours put throw that on some shirts everybody loves what i do i'm a beast with graphic design so like it's gonna be easy for me and so i did that and found out i didn't know how to do marketing right i was just sharing all my websites and stuff on my social media and that didn't really get me anywhere and so then i started doing yeah i started doing um a marketing agency and so on and so forth it's just a long path of this kind of recycled a mindset of oh well, I don't know how to do this so let me try to do this and granted I've learned a lot mm-hmm. doing all these things but because I was doing all them for the wrong reasons um, right. everything kind of just failed and something that I was coaching on and like I was talking about in season one was an itinerary right so the first things that I would do to kind of make myself um, get up was even if I wasn't going to do anything I would still set my alarms however early it is that I wanted to be up for that day and I would just have a bowl of cereal just have a bowl of cereal to get myself in the habitual routine of getting up that early. And so once it became that the fact that I was, cause my body works really weird. Once I wake up at a certain time with my alarm for so long, like after a couple of weeks, I'll start waking up 10 minutes before my alarm. Right. And your body should just naturally do that. Yeah. So it, it's interesting. You mentioned that because one of the thing, one of the lessons I learned in the getting up early piece is I would get up. I would, maybe put on something other than sweatpants and a t-shirt <laughs> i would make a cup of coffee and i would go straight down to my office and i would immediately start working and so i'd get up at five and by five fifteen, i was working mm-hmm. and i eventually realized that that was a total mistake and it was a total drain oh yeah because yeah so it's a total drain and and so when you get up to to have the bowl of cereal or like my reading uh you know to pick up a book first thing in the morning or to even put on an audiobook or a podcast you know that is that first when you get up that is really kind of you know you time it's mm-hmm. it's organizational time and so even now on the days that I struggle with getting up early um when I first get up, it is, you know, doing something to, to, to get myself thinking where I need to be and, and kind of wrapping my head around, 
uh, you know, the day or, mm-hmm. or, or whatever. It Just a lot be. of self-reflection so, yeah. stuff, right? Right. A lot of self-reflection stuff. Definitely. Uh, so the, which, which uh, is interesting. And, and there was a lot of self-reflection even in writing the book. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I'm pretty sure one of the, so yeah. within graphic design, a lot of the, and I meant to mention this to the last guest that I had recorded with, and we just went off on some tangents and I totally had forgotten, but he was talking a lot about that hindsight, you know what I mean? That self-reflection mm-hmm. and always looking back at things. And um, something that I wanted to bring up was uh, within my, last year doing the podcast when I launched the second season I released a lot of like uh, wallpapers on my Instagram uh, with like some little messages here and there uh, you know just graphic design um, that related to the podcast so one of them was like a guy holding an old Nintendo controller looking at a TV screen and it was like the Mario background but the background said um, instead of it saying Super Mario Bros it said uh, take control or play the game of life you're in control and it was like yes or no and the bottom said the melancholy condition whatever and the other one that i wanted to bring up was um it was like being in a and it's really interesting that (laughs) that this is the one that i'm bringing up for you but it's for um what is it called the machine that whenever you're getting your eyesight tested the whenever they give you prescription glasses uh-huh. when they do the refraction yeah sure. yeah so it's uh, right I, I can't think of what the official name is i don't know if i've ever known what the official name of the machine is but yeah so when you're getting a refraction you're you're up in that you got your chin on the thing yeah yeah and it, so it's that and you can see it it's a little blurry in the front because it's like as if it's close to your face and through the eyesight holes it shows the chart right. and instead of saying you know a b c d whatever on the lines mm-hmm. it says uh hindsight is always 2020 mm-hmm. so and that's something yeah, that i've and that's, and that's true yeah i mean it's it's a hundred percent it's always always there every time you look back at the things and you kind of have those self-reflections you're always going to have a more clear concise and almost like a smarter um opinion of the event whenever you reflect right. on it opposed to the emotions and everything that you're feeling whenever you're within the the motion whenever you're in the waves whenever you're getting tossed around you know what i mean um and something before we move on too quick that i wanted to add on was with that being said of how i was coaching almost right of how to get up early and how to set yourself an itinerary before you go to bed and how to hold yourself accountable before getting up not many people realize that like regardless i can say a thousand things and i can have a thousand guests on here that have all the right advice but we're all still human Every there's times where I may be up late tonight. I work like yesterday. I had to cancel like two of the episodes um, that I had planned on recording today because yesterday I was on three hours of sleep. I woke up at like five in the morning. I had a drive because um, me and my girlfriend are about to move to uh, a city three hours away. It's a bigger city so she can continue her education and stuff. And I drove on three hours of sleep the three hours there did everything all day went with her to help her take her tests um went to the apartment complexes went out to eat went to the job interviews that i had and then still came home and drove and still you know continued about my day and had to do the things that i had to do when i got home and i was up until like two in the morning so i was like yo i'm sorry guys like (laughs) i have to go to bed you know what i mean i didn't get out of bed until 10 today so i shouldn't do i shouldn't do this yeah absolutely and the thing but the thing is though is you know we're human 
we're human. There's going to be days where we all have those busy days where we're going to be tired, where we're going to be busy. And even if you're having things, um, you're having trouble getting up if you're, you know, because everybody has trouble getting up. Everybody has trouble getting the day started. Once you're halfway through the day and you've already done half of what you, you know, plan to do, then yes, you feel great. And that feeling is rewarding, but everybody still has those struggles. So I just don't want any of the listeners or even um, maybe you to misconstrued that that's a bad thing all the time. If it becomes debilitating, then yeah, maybe sure you have those reflection points of like, hey, you know, I really need to get on track with this. But I think it should be understood that it's still okay to have like an off day every now and then because we're human. You know what I'm saying? Right. Right. I think I think the more important thing, though, is so, so we all know that everybody can have off days. Right. Yeah. And even I mean, I will guarantee you that if you look at guys like Buffett or Gates or, you know, jobs, you know, any any of these guys that you see their name, and you're like, whoa, they've really made it. You know, they're they're great. Their lives are I will guarantee you uh and, and, and I will point to Steve Jobs uh, specifically mm-hmm. because I know that he had he had significant struggles uh, in his early life, mm-hmm. uh, not 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 just because of the not just because of his adoption, mm-hmm. uh, but because of other other things. Uh, I will guarantee that in his later life he had these off days, and I think part of that uh, is what fed uh, in his earlier life. That's what fed some of his explorative, explorative things that he did uh, that, that later helped him through uh, some of these periods. Mm-hmm. And, and so even, even uh, when, you, when, you look at, when you look at his life, uh, when, he, when he left Apple uh, the first time, mm-hmm. uh, that, that was not good for him. Yeah, uh, that was. It was, was that whenever he started doing the calligraphy? Yeah, no. So that was actually before, because the calligraphy, uh, as I understand it, the calligraphy and the exploration of calligraphy is what really helped develop some of the early fonts with uh, with the Apple, the Apple II, uh, and some of these. No, I think the calligraphy thing happened when he first dropped out of Reed College. Okay. Okay. And. And he also had, uh, even in later life, uh, a very sparse, uh, very sparsely uh, furnished home uh, because of his exploration of, uh, I believe it was Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and so he would do things that were more mindful in nature. And that's even kind of where I'm at with, with my research and continued research is looking at how mindfulness and informal service may have impacts on positive mental health. I think, you know, just to kind of add a, a note onto it, like a little sidebar, um, I worked with Wells Fargo as a teller for a little bit, a uh, little less than a year. And some of the things that they did is they had like required uh, volunteering. So like whether it be going to help with like some kind of social event or going and serving at, um, like a homeless collisions, uh, it was just something that was required to do. I think you had to have like 20 hours within the quarter. And that's a really good thing because, you know, I think a number of companies in the U S are really good at, or, or the trend is growing at least to have employee volunteer programs where you have the opportunity to serve, but the requirement to serve uh, is not, is not very common. 
Um, and, and the other thing is, you know, as a country, we really have a we really have a problem of service. And Absolutely. I think, one that's maybe, I think it's one that's starting to change a little bit. But but I talked to uh, a gentleman from England yesterday uh, for, for quite a while uh, who is also in volunteer management. And and we we didn't even have to agree. We just already it was almost an unspoken that other countries have done a really good job and and citizens of these countries understand the value of service and the u.s just we're not there oh no absolutely not and you know we're not there what's crazy about that is um i lived in houston and so i want to go on with two things um before we get back to what we were talking about but i lived in houston whenever hurricane harvey um happened and I remember that there was, what was it? There was a, all kinds of things that really hurt Houston, right? And there was a lot of things that could have been done to help the people. And specifically the spot where I lived, there was no, everybody was trapped. Like everybody was trapped. The only highway that uh, led into Atascacita and Kingwood was bridged. The, the bridge, the water went over the, the overpass. And so there was no way to get out there. The only way that they could get out there was like with boats and stuff like that. Like literally everybody was driving jet skis and stuff through the street. Um, you know, it was before like all kinds of the, the robberies and stuff started happening. People were just having a grand time because it was just something that happened in Houston. And if I'm not mistaken, right. uh, Mexico sent uh, the state of Texas like all kinds of like emergency foods, um, evac boats, things yeah. to help these people get out. And I was just like, hold on. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. And, it's and just, so that's it's the crazy. Amazing, so, so that's the amazing part. And so that it kind of leads me to another part of my research. So, you know, when you get a PhD, you do all sorts of academic research and, and you're not technically supposed to use traditional literature. Yeah, I did. I got away with it. Mm-hmm. But I made my case for it, right? And I backed it up with academic literature. But afterwards, I was a free man, right? I could do whatever I wanted. And I was able to pull in all this really cool stuff. And one of the things I pulled in was a concept called uh, the blue zone. Mm-hmm. And, and, what a, and what a blue zone is... Uh, it's an identified part of the world where people live a really long time. And when I say a really long time, I am talking about people that live to be 105, 110 years old. Interesting. And they do it consistently. Mm-hmm. To, the, um, to present date? Present date. Now, needless to say, there's not very many of these in the U.S. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah, of course not. <laughs> Now, it, now, the, now the company that does this, uh, the company that does this, or the company that was started by the guy that developed the Blue Zone concept, um, they will essentially let a city pay to become a Blue Zone, and they will give you the tools to do it. Mm-hmm. And so there are more of them in the U.S., but initially uh, there was only one in the U.S. and the numbers that were in other countries were phenomenal. Uh, I'm going to point to Mexico. I'm going to point to, uh, 
I'm going to point to uh, several other countries like in South America. And, mm -hmm. and so Dan Bootner, that's the developer of the Blue Zone concept, you know, that was kind of his thing was going in, I think, with a preconceived notion, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so, so he tells the story in one of the books where he's in, I believe he's in Mexico and he's in this village and they're, you know, thatched roofs and people are getting water from wells and, and they're super poor and, and all this. And, and he goes to interview a woman and she immediately offers him, uh, him food, immediately offers him food. <laughs> And she herself, I mean, that was her meal, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but they were extremely happy. They live a really long time because they just look at life different. They see life for what it is, you know, which is, and I can't disagree with this. It's serving others. It's, uh, it's doing what needs done instead of whatever in the world it is we're doing in the U.S. You know what? I'm actually really, as you're talking about this, I'm looking up the uh, Blue places. Zones. Yeah, Blue Zones in the United States as well as in other countries. And I'm not surprised that the number one of the top five Blue Zones, at least from what it came up in the, without doing too much digging, um, is an island in the Mediterranean Sea in Sardinia. That, that makes it me is. really, really happy. Um, yeah. So one thing before we, like I said, dive in too much on that, I didn't get to touch on it earlier, was this, the way the volunteering made me feel. Um, yeah. Whenever I went to this homeless collision, we stayed there for, I think, 7 to 11, where we helped prep the food. And then whenever they opened up, we served everybody until people stopped coming in, basically. And right. it, would, it gave me a different aspect, right? Because this community kitchen wasn't just homeless people. You saw a lot of different people. I see people in suits coming in like, and it made me really think like, is this where you have to get your meal before you're going in for an interview? Like, you know what I mean? And just knowing the city that I grew up in, it, it really put a different perspective on like other people that you don't see, like you don't interact with. I've never seen any of these people in my life. And there is less than 50,000 people in the town that I live in right now. Yeah. You know what I'm so, saying? So there was, yeah. So there was a story. This makes me think about, uh, you know, one, it, think about a couple of things. One is we have a misconception, not to get off on a whole other topic, but we have a misconception in our country about homelessness and what that looks like. We have mm -hmm. a misconception of poverty. Okay. Lyndon Johnson, President Johnson declared a war on poverty during his administration that has done some really good work. It's done some really good work. I'll point to AmeriCorps VISTA, Volunteers in Service to America. Uh, I'll point to probably even the way our SNAP program works, not food stamps. Mm -hmm. But here's the thing. But here's the thing. If you go to Silicon Valley, okay, and you look at people that are making hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, mm -hmm. okay, you're going to assume what? That they are living in a big house, that they are okay. Well, I'm going to tell you something. That's wrong. I, yeah, I was going to say, I think... There is a high population that is technically homeless mm -hmm. because they, their cost of living is so high. And so when you tell the story of the people coming in their suits and, and what's their story, 
well, <laughs> uh, at least in Silicon Valley, that's their story is the cost of living is so high. Yeah, I think as, cannot, yeah. as I was younger, I had that very perception of wealth. Right. And as I started getting into business and as I start like I meet people to this day still where it's like, hey, man, you know, I'm working on this new business idea. And it's always projected as this, this, this and that. Right. And then you look at the people that are, you know, may act a little bit differently and you can tell they're a little bit more wealthy. What I've seen that doesn't change is people live within their means. And sometimes it's outside of their means and on the bad spectrum, right? So like you can live outside of your means by making 50 grand a year and only living off 20,000 by living a very uh, sedimentary life. But uh, from what I've seen, at least the past couple of years of growing older and looking into people that are into business and people that are failing, at least a lot of these people tend to make live more expensive than what they make. You know what I'm saying? Right. Um, and so, so yeah, I, I understand a hundred percent and it makes sense. It's clear. Uh, one thing that I wanted to add on just before, so just so I can, you know, put a bullet in it, um, is giving all that volunteer work that I did and seeing all these different lifestyles of walking in, I would have never thought to do, I would have never had this idea put on my little vision board. Um, is I'm, I do a lot of film. I do a lot of film and I've wanted to, I still do. Um, you like travel film and vlogs and things like that as you know I start traveling more and with that in light I realized how much I really excuse me how much I really like um, actually filming things and documenting it right right and I would have never I had an idea that I was like you know what I could do I could set up a donation where I go to all the local businesses in town get a contract and say if you sign this and agree to donate this money goes here um, this is what it's going to go for. Just for example, I would do like a hundred, a $500 and a thousand dollar voucher, right? You, the business can sign to do volunteer to give that amount of money wherever it goes, right. Or how much ever they want. And then it would go towards like, um, a caddy of shampoo and conditioner, some underwear, some socks, some shirts, shoes, you know, whatever the case may be. And each bracket of, money gets a larger gift and what i wanted to do was go down to the homeless coalition and use some of that money to open an event and be like okay what we're doing here is you know it's winter there's a lot of people outside i'm giving out you know at no cost to me giving out um caddies of all this stuff you come you eat you get yourself a caddy make sure that you're getting taken care of and if you have a story to tell Let's go sit in that corner real quick in front of that camera. If you don't want your face to be shown, that's perfectly fine. And that's something that I wanted to do as far as like documentary purpose, right? That's something that I wanted to do for this city is, like I said, give back to the homeless and then have that documentary out. So where people could actually understand, like, who are these people? Why are they in the position they're in? Is it always, you know, bad choices or is it just bad circumstances? Right, right. And sometimes it's both. But of course, you know, part of part of my part of my mental health and avoiding the melancholy condition, I guess, is, you know, just to kind of <laughs> play off your. Are you there? I, I think it just cut out. You Are know, you there? It's, yeah, I'm still here. Oh, okay. Um, part, I, I, part, that just, it all cut out. So I want you to start where you said uh, yeah. give the playoff on the podcast. 
So, 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 you know, so part of avoiding the melancholy condition to play off the title of the show is for me learning new things. And, you know, when I served as an AmeriCorps VISTA, because uh, I did do a VISTA term, right? So a VISTA mm-hmm. is Volunteers in Service to America. And typically what happens with a VISTA, you are relocated for a year into a community that you know nothing about to work with poverty issues, okay? I okay. served where I lived. I served in Lamoni, Iowa, which is where we were living at the time. And I didn't have a job. Uh, I, I had done some call center work and, and my wife and I had a little bit of a consulting company, but not, not a whole lot. And, and so I was kind of approached by, hey, do you want to do this? And I found a passion for poverty because, and one of the things I learned about learning about poverty is, once again, as a culture, we are terrible at two things. One, we are terrible at telling our story Mm -hmm. and we are terrible about asking others this is the second point terrible about asking others to tell theirs and actually and actually listening okay i think about i I, i'm just gonna hypothetical example here okay you're driving down the street it's december and there's a guy living in a tent in somebody's front yard Mm. okay what are you going, you're going to make a bunch of assumptions and you might make some phone calls to some city officials, but until somebody actually goes, whether it's you or somebody else, until somebody goes and actually talks to the person in the tent to say, why are you here? Not even necessarily, can we help you? Do you need some help? Because I'm going to be honest with you. Some people are homeless by choice. Yeah. Some people are in poverty by choice, which sounds strange, mm-hmm. but, but, but I have talked to people that have just said, you know what, this is just who I am. This is just what I can do. You know, this is what I, I'm okay with this, uh, which can be difficult. So, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's Good crazy. Um, when I was younger, uh, I think I was like 16 is when I first got my car. Um, I used to always be out, out at night and I'd be driving around just because it was, it was the thing to do when I was 16. You know what I mean? Um, cause sure I is. had, I had dropped out of school, uh, my junior year of high school to, mm-hmm. to work and I continued doing my schooling online. Um, just so I didn't really miss out. I just wanted to work. You know what I mean? I wanted money and I wanted to be able to do, uh, things at my own discretion, and uh something it was probably could have got me killed but what i would do especially if it was cold if i saw like homeless people out and i I promise you this sounds made up but it's not there was a few instances where if i seen them i'd just pull my car over and be like hey man are you going somewhere like yeah could you drop me off at this house okay cool get in and then we just talk and we just talk but here's the thing here's the thing people used to do that people used to do that okay Mm mm-hmm you used to pick your drunk neighbor up while you were on the side of the road when you're in the middle of a snowstorm and take him home. You used to check on your neighbors. You used to stop and talk to a stranger on the street. You used to do what you just described. Mm-hmm. And then for whatever reason, because I'm 36 years old, okay? You and I sound like we're probably pretty close in age. And for whatever reason, something happened in the mid to late 90s. And it all, and, and our world got crazy weird. And now with 
super young millennials that are, you know, that are in their early to mid twenties, you know, that kind of thing. And the mm-hmm. next couple of generations coming up, I think we're going to swing back that direction. Right. And, and this is the other, one of the other things in the book and the calling all volunteers book is I talk about different generations and, and I talk specifically about generation alpha, which is kids that are just turning 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that generation is going to age out in tw- about 2025. I think we're going to see some of this come back because that generation, uh, the alphas, they want to help people. They want, they want to see people's conditions improve. And, and quite frankly, uh, some of them really agonize about people having problems and people yeah. not being in, in a good way. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's really interesting if you look through, um, I mean, I don't know how much social media uh, you do at all, but I, I, I spend a lot of time on Twitter. And sure. something that I've always loved about Twitter is at least the community of people that I follow. Um, I follow a lot of comedians. I follow a lot of other people that do podcasts. And of course, like a lot of like brands, just because I'm curious on what's new and the things that i like but um something that i've always noticed about the community on twitter is like whenever something crazy happens and i'm not i'm not even talking about like oh you know they're fighting over a popeye's chicken sandwich again um i'm talking about like just devastating life instances right there's always some weird like bubble of support of this person always yeah and, and it trips me out and it's something that you know i love I love and I wish people were like that in real life. You know, I don't know if these people are only liking it, retweeting it, commenting on it because, you know, their friends are going to see them do that because that is a viable thing that people do. But if if that was true, altruistic personality trait and people started behaving like that, I think we'd be in a very, very different world that we know and it would operate differently. Um, more out of compassion you know what I'm saying right absolutely you know and I I think as you said I you know social media has definitely caused our culture to do some interesting things Um, but I definitely see I'm not a strong Twitter user I do use it Mm -hmm. Uh, but I think I'm on Facebook more but if you compare the two if there's a disaster if there's something bad that happens the community definitely gathers probably faster on Twitter than on Facebook. Facebook, to me, has been more of uh, let's jump on the bandwagon. Uh, mm-hmm. I'll give an example. I'll give an example. Uh, so my college uh, that I was at, uh, Grayson University, we were not one of the early Facebook adopters, right? I had friends at other mm-hmm. schools that were, on, that were on Facebook way sooner than Grayson was. And like I told one of my daughters the other night, uh, when Facebook first came out, you didn't have fan pages; you had groups. Yeah. And and so people would create silly little groups. Um, and people would join them just to say they were part of the group, you know. Mm-hmm. And so you would have you would have the very the very unserious um, flipping your pillow over to the cool side group, <laughs> uh, you know. And then you would have the very serious outreach international group, which is a mm-hmm. nonprofit uh, that's, that's that's based in the Independence, Missouri area, uh, that, that a lot of people have probably heard of, you know. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Yeah, it's definitely crazy, man. Um, Mm -hmm. One thing I did want to add, though, uh, earlier, I know I've said that a lot, 
uh, this episode. But you said that we're probably pretty close in age. How old are you? You said 36? So I'm 36, right? You're 36. You are 14 years older than me. Oh, my word. <laughs> well, I called that one wrong. I apologize. No, 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 no. Well, See, but, but, but here's the thing. Here's the thing. You, also, you also proved my point, though. You also proved my point, which is there is a bunch of young millennials that are starting to to want to see a reoccurrence or a resurgence of certain social behaviors. Yeah. I think a lot of people, and I, I think this is true within more than just my generation. I think this is true within a large vast of the human population. Right. I do believe humans are altruistic, right? I do Absolutely. believe Absolutely. that people want to ha- want to see things the best outcome right now are do, are we selfish are we you know are humans generally do we look out for ourselves first absolutely most of the time absolutely absolutely and, and i and i can and i can probably prove it because if if once again if, if you go into into the the pages of calling all volunteers you're going to find three different versions of maslow's hierarchy of needs uh, why, why are there three different versions? You'll have to go read the book to find out. But <laughs> nice plug. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but if you look at Maslow's, and, and, and there's, a common, there's a commonality mm-hmm. in all three versions of the pyramid, and that commonality is basic human needs. And I think in some ways, even for people that are maybe considered societally to be well off, there is this, I just want to survive. I just yeah. want to deal with life until I don't have to deal with it anymore. Yeah, absolutely. And I don't, and I don't mean that from a negative standpoint. I'm not saying that no, 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 wants to. That I'm not saying that everybody wants their life to be over, or their lives are bad. What I'm saying is, um, our world's gotten pretty weird. Yeah, and it's gotten really complicated, and it's gotten really uncomfortable in a lot of ways, and it can be really hard to deal with. Yeah. I think that I think those reasons right there are actually can actually be tied to what I was going to end on was that I think people want to be a part of something that is whether it be something that they create or that they say that they can. Oh, yeah, I listen to that podcast. I, I know the people that go on there. I know what they things they talk about. If it's for a better cause, I think people want to know that they're still good. You know what I mean? I think because we are altruistic human beings, I think people still want to have this hope of, oh, well, there's a positive thing. Oh, that person's talking about mental disorders. We need to listen to him. We need to listen to the things that they're saying because these these are being suppressed because the world is so weird, because the world has evolved into, you know, where we are at today that I think now that increases the demand of people that are just projecting positivity and gratitude. You know what I'm saying? Right. You know, and, and, and where I'm going to end and kind of one of my last thoughts is going to be this. Two thoughts. One, everybody needs to go to Amazon and checking out Calling All Volunteers, New Ideas yes, for Managing. Because I talk about volunteerism, but I, talk, but I also, I really, I don't ding on our culture like I probably could have, right? But there's a lot of different things in there about generations and how our generations look at service. But I really encourage people to use that section to also understand people for what they are, for who they are and why they are who they are, because generations have, generations have uh, common 
threads that run mm -hmm. through them uh, that make them who they are, right? And, and the second thing is when we talk about the melancholy condition, mental health, whatever it may be, people, people like myself that have done research, that have done good things, uh, we're important. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but the reason we are important, at least from my standpoint, I would not be who I am if I had not listened to other people. And yeah. I'm going to be honest with you. Some of the people I have listened to are people that are mentally ill, that are impoverished, that are unemployed, that are considered or could be considered by our society to be bottom of the barrel. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those are some of the best lessons. Absolutely. Um, to kind of add a sidebar to that, that I read a lot of books. I do have a bad habit of getting halfway through a book and then starting another one because I heard somebody else talk about it. And I was like, oh, and then I have all these half-finished books. But one of the first books, like whenever I got into reading, um, I probably want to say was around when I was 16. Uh, like when reading different things, because when I was 14, I started reading a lot of human development, psychology, human behavior books, because I, I think because of my abusive childhood and all the trauma that I went through, I went through a lot of crazy shit with my little brother's dad. Um, he's very, very abusive, um, very manipulative, narcissistic. And it just, it threw me for a whirlwind. I, it made me of who I am today because now, you know, I didn't necessarily, I wasn't reactive as a child. I kind of just watched everything happen and I kind of just watched it all play out. When I was about eight, my mom, which this is whenever it started, she would pull me into her room and ask me all these questions like, hey, how do I deal with this? You know, I don't know what to do. Sure. And this is somebody that's, you know, 25 years older than me. So at like at a very young age, I immediately had to start doing this thing where I was having to think critically about not my life. You know what I'm saying? So um, as I was young, I started reading a lot of human behavior and books like that because it, because of the humans that I was exposed to at a very young age, it didn't make sense to me, opposed to what, how I saw other people living their life. I see other people living their life and being happy and seeing all these things. I'm like, hold on. Whenever I ask you this question, I'm like, hey, what do you do whenever your mom does this? And they freak out. And then now I'm in counseling because they went and told the teacher that this is happening. You know what I mean? So it's it was really weird for me. But anyways, one of the books that I first started reading whenever I took a different approach um, in literature was uh, the Tao Te Ching, which is I can get I don't know who it's by. Um, here, I have it right here. It is by Stephen Mitchell. Um, it's basically just a lot of parables that are based all around the Tao. Um, and so one of the things that it said somewhere in there was, and this is going to be a very rough translation because like I'll read you with something. I don't know. Have you ever read this book? I have not. Okay. So just so you can kind of understand how things are in shape here. Um, you'll understand why I give you a different translation. It says color blinds the eye sounds deaf in the ear flavors, numb the taste thoughts, weaken the mind desire wither the heart. The master observes the world, but trust is inner vision. He allows things to come and go. His heart is open as the sky. So it's just the whole book is parables like that. Right. And I would read a, read a page or two every single day and try to see if I could understand what it meant. 
And kind of how you said is, you know, the people that are in um, quote unquote, the worst situations may give us the best lessons uh, that it has one in there where it's basically saying that the master and the master is you or I or him or her. It's no, it's, there's no specific person that's the master. The master is yourself. And it says the master spends time around the deaf. It spends time around the blind. It spends time around the mute to learn these different things. You know what I mean? And that's just, and and it's a hundred percent true though, because if you look at every aspect in life, if you did the things that I did, when I was younger, whenever I met homeless people and I didn't want them, because I, I heard about a large, um, a large percentage of homeless people committing suicide. And that's always been something that has been like, it hurts me to hear about. I, whenever I hear about family or even like people that I love talking about, like, oh, they're contemplating or they're thinking about it. It's something that shakes me inside. I don't know why, but it's something that shakes me. And so at, since I was young, I would always try my best whenever I see homeless people to talk to them, to give them two seconds of the day to make them feel like they're somebody just because I heard that there was a statistic that said 72% of homeless people kill themselves eventually. You know what I mean? So because I would go out of my way to try to talk to these people and just even ask them like, Hey, how's it going? Like, okay. So one time I'm sitting in this place called Ridoso, New Mexico. It's about 45 minutes to an hour outside of my town and it's a complete different town it's like all woods like if you could i don't know whatever is in north dakota all the woods and mountains that's exactly how it is it's a small town very touristy it has like one road of restaurants and like attractions and the rest of it is just camping sites um i think for my 17th birthday i went there by myself and i went and just sat down I didn't, I was in a weird spot. Some crazy stuff was happening in my life and I just wanted to be alone. And, uh, this dude came up to me and you might, what is this instrument? It's, um, it's almost like a horn. It's like an African horn. They'll blow into it and it's, it makes a crazy sound. It's like, it just looks like a pipe, but whenever they blow into it, like almost like a trumpet, it makes, um, it just, it sounds tribal. It just it sounds just sure, real tribal. Sure. And so anyways, yeah, this guy's absolutely. playing it and one of the store owners comes out and he's like, you need to get the F out of here. Um, you're, you know, just taking customers. Sure, away. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And so he moves and I saw him move. And so I went and sat next to him and I went and asked him, you know, his whole story. And he tells me this crazy heartfelt story. Right. And I had mm-hmm. about. I think. In my wallet, I had about $200, and in my back pocket, I had a $50 bill. And I knew that I had it in my back pocket when I sat down. And after this guy tells me this long, long story, um, he, I asked him, I was like, are you hungry? Because you know, he tells me about, like, basically, he, him and his friends, they all went out somewhere backpacking. And then his friend and her girlfriend, uh, like, got up and just left him there. And he's been just, like... Uh, hitchhiking all the way across these like four different states and i was like oh damn like are you hungry you know what i mean because if i can you know at least give him a meal make me feel a little bit better because that's a tough story and so he's like yeah and i was like all right so i go to get up and i was like you know just sit here because you know you have all this stuff with you i'm sure you don't want to just leave it out here just watch your stuff and i'll go get you a burger and so i went and ordered him two burgers and right as soon as i went to pay i reached in my back pocket and i'm sure i'm 100 percent sure 
that $50 bill fell out of my back pocket. And when I looked at the bench, he was gone. So I was like, all right, I understand. But I, you know, I wasn't mad though. You know what I mean? Right. I wasn't right. mad because exactly. I, I was planning to give to him anyways. Exactly. exactly. I don't know. It's just, it's, it's crazy. No, that's great. That's great. No, we lead interesting lives. So no, I've really enjoyed this. This has been great. Absolutely. Is there Absolutely. any um, last advice that you want to maybe give out as well as like so. social you know, things? Yeah. So, so socially, uh, so Dr. J on Twitter, and that's just the letter J. So uh, it's or on Facebook, sorry, facebook.com slash Dr. Jesse O. Bollinger, I think it is. So it's Dr. J if you just want to search it. Um, and then Twitter uh, slash Bollinger jesse um, and then the book calling all volunteers new ideas for recruiting and managing uh on amazon and barnes and noble awesome awesome well it has been a pleasure talking to of these i think of the season three that i've recorded this is probably my favorite so far so i'm very awesome. excited for this I like one that. Um, (laughs) no it's just it's very hard sometimes you know i find myself there's been a few instances where i think people may be nervous and unprepared to talk you know what i mean so like it it just it comes off standby-ish it's very short conversation and i i don't mind doing those podcasts but after enough of them i'm just like all right i need somebody that's going to be able to bounce off my ideas and give me a piece of information that I haven't thought about yet. You know what I mean? Because that's really what I look for within this podcast because people can listen to me talk all day, but there's, I guarantee you, if I continued this podcast, just talking about me all day, eventually someone would be like, yo, nobody ever tells this man. Nobody tells him that he's wrong. You know what I mean? So if I can talk to whoever it is and share my ideas and someone be like, hold on, you know, you have a great idea, but look at it through this exactly. glass look at look you know at the saying? use this lens use, use this lens you know yeah exactly uh, as one of my old professors used to say you know we all have different lenses yep yep Very good. awesome well this has been wonderful. Uh, thank Jesse, you so it's much. been a pleasure talking to you you know um you're a real strong man i appreciate, I appreciate you coming that. up here sharing your story and sharing the things that you know most people would definitely become let become a limitation on their life yeah um congratulations on beating cancer man that's that's huge you're really uh you got something there man you keep working doing everything that you need to stay in touch and maybe season four comes around we'll get you back on here and we'll talk about the second book yeah no i know i'll definitely come back (laughs) and uh we can definitely do this again so i really appreciate it thank you so much of course uh, look looking forward to more shows awesome awesome thank you so much man we'll talk to you soon talk to you soon have a good rest of your day thank you Put your head on my shoulder